Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. I am your captain this evening. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm sorry. Have and you seen what I, I have my my uh, my bound and gagged prisoner here, Ethan Bartlett. Thank you, Ethan. That's enough from you. Now down to the build with you. Uh, and we're going to talk about books, but we're not going to talk about scotch. And we also have another special guest with us today who is allowed to speak, uh, and that's Nick Lilienthal. Hello. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I, I, I want to be the only character with a decent moral compass. <laughs> Oh, there are none of those allowed on this that's, show. That's that's yeah. not allowed. I know. No. Moral. moral it was worth a try. Compass eye. Yep. Our the correct Latin plural right out. compass. <laughs> yes. Compass eye. Compass eye. <laughs> also, I think a type of magic user in the Wheel of Time series, but I might be wrong about that. You know, mm. there's a there's a decent possibility. <laughs> I mean, you got, what, several million words in there somewhere? You can throw a stick and probably hit that one. <laughs> Any four they, syllables. Well, they, well I would say they, they, use, they, they use the one power or the whatever it's called yeah. again. But they just hide it because, you know, fantasy racism. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, that fantasy racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of fantasy racism, we are going to drink some scotch on this show. Well, at least Ethan and I are. Uh, we're keeping it from Nick. Um, he's in a different class on, on this ship that we're It would we're, be a greater feat if they got it to me, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, all the way down there in steerage. In steerage, <laughs> yes. Or whatever. Yeah. Uh... No, sorry. I'm still I'm still stuck on the whole segue you just did about <laughs> yeah. speaking of fantasy rights. <laughs> I was trying to make that make any sense. I was just no, wondering see, what you were drinking at that point. The best the best way <laughs> to make that, a segue exactly. when you don't know how to make a segue is just to say speaking of whatever and then bring up whatever next topic you have and let everyone else try to figure out what the connection is. Mm-hmm. All right. Don't explain it at all. In the secret third episode for this one, we're going to explain to Michael what a segue is. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> I can do segues. Speaking of segues, here's the scotch we're drinking. <laughs> I'm actually pretty angry that that works as well as it does. Um, uh, we are drinking uh, Ben Riach, the 12 Speyside Singles Malt Scotch Whiskey. Um, the Rachel, uh, from Rachel Berry Master Blender. Now, this is a scotch that my wife picked out. I gave her the reins uh, to go to the store uh, and pick out whatever scotch we should drink. Uh, and she saw that this one had a master blender named Rachel and decided that sounded interesting. Um, I mean, <laughs> it caught my eye when you pulled it out of the bag just now, so, like, I can't even disagree with her. Right? It's, yeah, uh, works. it's catching. So, here's our bottle. I just wanted you to pull it out and be, and it'd be bright green or something. <laughs> well, that's Lefroy. Uh, yes, we have had on the show already. Right. Pop us open here. Where's that garbage? I am uh, quite proud of Sarah for picking one that we have not done yet. Yeah, like she doesn't know all the all the scotches we've drunk. But and, like it does look. I I think I've seen this distillery on the shelf before and noted hmm. it as one that looked interesting. Uh, I don't know anything else about it. Sure. And I like it that way. Mm-hmm. At least to begin with. Well, let's uh, open her up here. Pour a wee dram. So, Nick, this is what we're drinking. What are you drinking? I am drinking Diet Wild Cherry Pepsi. All right. <laughs> Very good. Now, that's not a crime as long as you don't mix Benriach the 12 in with it. Yes. Yeah, that would be a bit <laughs> odd. That would be, we would all be arrested in the middle of recording this. It's true. Um, the uh, like, ship would be so. stormed by... I believe I put Wild Cherry Pepsi into a chocolate authority. shake once, and that was a mistake. Ooh. Yikes. Oh. It's like, like I can see the appeal be. of like the was, chocolate and the cherry. It, it, yeah. it, it, right? it tasted all right, but it was still a mistake. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, the the old the literal old fashioned way of doing that would just be get some chocolate syrup and put it in the Pepsi. Yeah, true. Like that's how you used to make chocolate sodas, like soda fountains and right, stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. When they were called sulfates. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, uh, Ethan, why don't you get your wife in here, the first mate, uh, to come and read the rules. Uh, hey, Karen, can you come and read the rules and also please add a rule that Michael can't make any more ship metaphors? <laughs> <laughs> He's already used up his supply. Well, they, we, we did need it for eight months, so. <laughs> <laughs> rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four, Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six, the wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven, if four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Thank you, Karen. You didn't do what I said, but um, what else is new? But that does bring up the point that uh, having a guest on the show, the guest always has the prerogative to create a rule for the episodes on which they are guesting. Uh, And so, Nick, uh, would you like to institute any rule for this episode or this set of episodes? You can use the term demon or devil. But once you say one, you stick with it. Oh! As an inveterate reader of 17th century drama and fiction, I actually feel like I'll be pretty okay with this. Rule. I think I think I can I think I, think I can do that. Mm-hmm. I'll just have to have to remember and keep myself honest. Yeah, I don't know if it'll be right. too terrible to do, but it sounds fun. So it, it does fun. sound fun. Yes. All right. Well, with that, lachayam. Slancha. What they said. All right, so for this episode, uh, in which uh, Nick is our guest, we are discussing the book The Devil in the Dark Water by Stuart Turton, and I think I realized I just locked myself into that (laughs) rule. You did? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Now, and I'm okay with whatever ruling there is on this. What if I do, like, sort of like an old-timey prospector voice, and I say divil? (laughs) Divil. Does that lock me into saying that forever? I am. I, I want it to, but <laughs> well, you are the creator of the rule, so I think <laughs> okay. if well, you want it, that's how it is. Uh, since right. it's a hypothetical, you aren't stuck in it yet. But if you do do it, then you're stuck in it. That's that's that, oh, okay. That's, 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 that's how much I'll be kinder merciful. than we ever are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's much kinder than Michael would be. And I see. I do appreciate the fair-mindedness of that. So <laughs> I'll uh, I'll take it. But yes, this uh, this is the second novel written by Stuart Turton, mm-hmm. um, and the the second novel by Stuart Turton, which we are discussing on this podcast. Now, and the first book that we discussed by him also had Nick as our guest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is true. I was going to ask: Is it the first time in that we've had a, an author appear twice in the main episode? It is. I believe it is. Hopefully, yes. all right. Because. Technically, in the past, we've done a Neil Gaiman novel and a Neil Gaiman like comic, comic right? Uh, for one of the specials, and I think there's at least one other author we've done that with. Okay, I can't recall who off the top. Neil of my Gaiman head. was the only other one I was thinking of. Yeah, who maybe have... he's the only one, but I I feel like there's at least one other one. There's a good possibility. 
Unless it's that we did someone for a special that I intended to bring for a future book, because that's oh. also possible. Yeah, that could be. And that would be only something that would be significant in my mind. Mm-hmm. But, yes. So anyway, yeah, that's also significant. Stuart Turton is the first two full book experience author on right. this show. So he just yes. fits right into your niche, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so yes, this, this is a book that takes place on a ship by and large. Um, I, I'm trying to avoid the question that's right there because it's not an interesting one. Um, well, sometimes you have to get the non-interesting ones out of the way. Yeah. True, true. Okay. Here, here's the non-interesting one, and it's going to take us in other directions because I don't really care about the answer to this particular question. But what genre is this book? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, the good one. Yeah. It's not an interesting question. I don't care. Um, I mean, it, it sort of depends to me whether it's an interesting question sort of depends on the angle at which you're asking it. Yeah. Because if you're asking it to just try to say like oh i'm making a you know a tiktok or something about books from a certain genre and i'm wondering if this fits in here like that's not interesting at all or even Mm -hmm. if you're talking about it like you're a bookstore someone who runs a bookstore and you're trying to figure out where to classify it right however to me like that was perhaps the or certainly one of the dramatic questions of this book in a certain sense are we dealing with actual devils um mm-hmm. there i go mm-hmm. uh <laughs> the the narrative which would make it a certain you know genre that in mm-hmm. other ways it looks very much like mm-hmm. or are we dealing with something that is is explicable on a materialistic level yes which would make it a, a different genre. like it, if it's, a lot of if the there's narr- a supernatural explanation it feels like it's a fantasy novel mm-hmm. and if there's not it feels like it's a mystery novel or a thriller mm-hmm. or something. But I think those are both somewhat misleading. Mm-hmm. First of all, actually, uh, we should do this right now before I go any further. Oh, yes. Go ahead and read the book. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Listener, yes. read the book because we are about to spoil it. And I will say, like, you know, we always do our thing about, like, from here on out, we're going to spoil it. Uh, so either read it first or accept that... This book is going to be spoiled. And there are certain books, like, it really didn't matter with, say, The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy. Oh, yeah. This book is kind of the opposite of that, Mm -hmm. in that, like, the surprises and the mystery are kind of part Mm -hmm. of the initial experience in a larger way than a lot of the other books we've had on this podcast. Very similar to his first book. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And some people don't care about that anyway, like... Mm -hmm. Right. and, And I tend to agree with the thesis that, like, a good book... Uh, that's surprising the first time if it's actually good will still be good once you know the surprises yes For sure. so if you don't you know maybe you don't care about that but like i just wanted to extend this warning slightly more yep. than usual yes because what, what, of that what i will say is a lot of the narrative tension in the book hangs on that question of genre of exactly uh-huh, what is uh-huh. this so that's why yeah read this book first so that before we go into detail on the idea uh just to fit in i was it makes sense yes yeah. all right so read it welcome back um <laughs> now that said everything that i said and then nick just said i also would like to assert does not matter yes mm-hmm. and uh and you you basically said that before um because it what it reminds me of specifically is uh the author neil stevenson Mm. Have either of you guys read any of Stevenson's? Uh, Rise and Fall of Dodo, yes. Okay. Um, I've read most of his books, including that one. He did Snow Crash? Uh, I would love to... Yeah, Snow Mm. Crash is probably his... Probably still his best known Mm -hmm. and certainly most influential I haven't read it, but that's what I've I would love to have one of his books on this podcast Mm. at some point. The drawback to that being that... Most of them, especially the good ones and influential ones, are minimum like 600 pages long. Yep. Mm. Many of them much longer than that. And they're um, dense from his writing, too. They're, they're thick. Yes. Cryptonomicon, which <laughs> I 
tend to argue might be his best book is like 1100 pages of paperback uh, um that none of that is the point the point i was going to make about neil stevenson is he said one time i think he was being interviewed about a trilogy of books that he wrote uh what's called the baroque cycle and it's this massive you know it's a trilogy each entry in the trilogy is a thousand plus pages long like it's this massive work um and essentially and i'm very much paraphrasing here like i'm i'm not i'm quoting even less than i normally do but he basically said uh that there's a certain type of book that will appeal to fantasy readers. And I think he was mm-hmm. making the case that the Baroque cycle was one of these, even though it's technically not a fantasy book. Like I mm, don't that makes think, sense. and I haven't read the Baroque cycle, so I, I could have this wrong, but I don't think there's anything in the Baroque cycle that you couldn't technically find in like a work of historical fiction. And yet it's all Baroque cycle is because of partly because of who Neil Stevenson is as an author, almost always see it in, um, science fiction or fantasy hmm. listings um, and I think a lot of that goes down to technique and style of storytelling and yeah. also what an author's sense of what their readers want is mm-hmm. um, and I want to let you guys like answer this question also instead of just talking the entire time so I'm going <laughs> to sort of make an assertion that and say that I will uh, if 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 it's helpful or interesting, I will come back to this assertion later. I would say this book reads more like a fantasy novel than it does like a mystery novel. Mm. Um, yes, I would agree with Even that. though, and here is the big spoiler, of course, ultimately it is, the, the data of the book is more like a mystery novel than like a fantasy novel. Right. But I would be more likely, if I were recommending this book to someone... I would be more likely to recommend it to them that, if they liked a certain type of fantasy novel mm-hmm. than I would if I thought they were a fan of mystery novels. That's, okay, that's something that I was going to bring up, too. Um, and it relates to how this book comes off after having read Stuart Turton's first book. Yes. Which also reads, like, it, the kickoff is it's it's a mystery, but with, like, a supernatural feel to it. But ultimately, yeah. the mystery is very different. <laughs> um, I mean, ultimately... And I guess spoilers for the seven and a half deaths of Hebel and Hardcastle. Yeah. Um, ultimately, that one is a science fiction novel. Yes. Right. And these th- they're it's, almost reversed. But, yes. Yep. That one starts off feeling like a mystery novel and ends up being a speculative fiction novel, whereas uh-huh. this one starts off feeling like a speculative fiction novel and ends up, technically speaking... I'm, really I'm wondering like also novel. how much of that is because I've read the seven and a half deaths? Like, right. how much yes. does that inform this that I kept in my mind? Like, is this real? <laughs> Could right. this be real? One one thing going into this book was uh, a lot of my opinion on this book. I need to decide how much of it is informed by my opinion of his first book. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> that, and that, that would be an interesting, like, I don't know. Was, uh, Nick may or may not be aware of this, but like one of the things I say on almost every book at some point is like, if I were in grad school, here's mm. the thesis I would write on this. Oh, nice. Um, okay. I don't know if this is, like, a full, like, you know, end of grad school thesis or if it's, like, a term paper. Right. I'll say it's at least a 15-page term paper. Nice. Mm -hmm. Where you take Seven and a Half Deaths and The Devil in Dark Water and analyze the second one in terms of its audience being the audience of the first one. Yes. That's, Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, depending on how, like, into literary theory or like meta levels of theory you want to get you have all kinds of like you've unlocked all kinds of like i don't know discussion or debate about does you know how how does an author's approach and use of language or tropes even change based on their perception of their audience's perception of their other work Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it always does like that's that's inherently a part of it but um i think this these would be an interesting pair of novels to analyze from that perspective oh for sure single pages or double or single spaced or double spaced (laughs) (laughs) i mean when i when i was in grad school it was always times new roman 12 point double Uh, so that's okay there you go there's your assignment nick so trope for i haven't written a 15 page paper in about a year so 
<laughs> well, I haven't written one in ten years nice. since I graduated from grad school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Um, no, that. Yeah, go ahead, Nick. No, that would be, uh, that that's kind of the main thing. Like, I read this once, and then I read it again just a little bit ago in preparation for this. So I read this once. I think three years. When did this come out? Um, twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. So I read this two years ago. Because I got it when it came out, read it two years ago, and then read it again in response to this. And my, I don't know if my opinion has changed, but it has certainly morphed between the two times. Okay. Simply because of, well, because it's built itself sort of like a mystery. And again, like calling it a mystery or a historical novel, especially a historical novel, but mystery or historical novel, Mm -hmm. a thriller... All of that is true, but somewhat misleading, because a lot of that is set dressing for the story being told, especially the historical aspects. That is set dressing uh, for what story they want to tell. One of the main things from it that I got, especially from the second reading, is catching what that set dressing was being used for. For example... Uh, the 17th century, according to this book, was filthy. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that filth is used. Do you know one character that is never yep. described as filthy? Aren't. Mm. Oh, okay. Uh, Interesting. There is blood on him. He has issues, but he is never described as covered in filth that I can find. Sure. But... And uh, it, it try the the one moment I'm thinking of is like it it tries to get on him when um, what's his name like defecates in his bunk. Yes, <laughs> but like it never gets him. Mm-hmm. You're right. Yeah, he is never described as it. Whereas every other character has a moment, and especially telling what are the the okay the first two moments where you see are the first two kind of sequences with Sammy Pips. First one, yep. he's been beaten. He's filthy. He's covered in these things. The second one, mm-hmm. he's taken up to the top, and then every word he says is accompanied by him relieving himself. He is nope. <laughs> he is he is both literally and figuratively spewing filth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's which is which is just a fascinating thing itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, it becomes a thing in this where since every character has filth on them, uh, there's mm-hmm. either straight filth people who are living in it or filth covered in finery. Um, yeah, and so and that informs their characters very, very quickly. Yeah. Well, it gets across a lot of the morality of the book. Yes, and who is um, or the characters in the book, and who is considered to be in the right, at least from the point of view of the narrative. Yep. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting clue into into mm-hmm. all of that. Um, now, I I had. Uh, an interesting thought occur to me early on. So uh, thinking of, of genre and things like this, and some of the, the questions that would come up about is, is any of the fantasy aspect of this real? Mm. Um, <clears throat> if this were a Sherlock Holmes story, you wouldn't ever really entertain the idea that anything fantastical was real. You would know that Sherlock Holmes at some point is going to get to the bottom of it and have a rational explanation for everything right? right there's um something like that or or uh hercule uh hercule poirot thank you yes. um same thing you know he'd have a, a a reasonable rational logical explanation for anything that appeared fantastical correct um with this like it definitely has some of those aspects like the way pips is described in his detective work with his uh, like anti charisma um, is very much a Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. type of detective, um, and you've got Arendt, who's his sidekick, and also the one who uh, has written the accounts of their adventures, and therefore is the Watson to his Holmes. Um, yes. But the it, it it takes on kind of a postmodernist aspect to that where it undermines all of that and leaves you with the possibility that no this could actually be real only to turn it around again uh at the end and say no it was all actually made up and here's your holmesian reveal Mm -hmm. yeah i mean 
the this is this is a as much facetious as not, but mm. um, there's there have been certain uh, uh, properties like media properties that have actually done quite well for themselves that started out as fan fiction of another property. Oh sure, yes. Um, and uh, my like. If I was if I was making up a theory that I knew was wrong, but I wanted people to think I was serious to like get clicks on the internet or mm-hmm. something, the theory I would make up is that this started life. This book started life as a Sherlock Holmes fan fiction. Sure, okay, and that um, Stuart Turton just reskinned it and uh, you know altered the the nationality time period. Yeah. And, and I, geographical yeah. setting to avoid mm-hmm. you know well, lawsuits or something. Um, I don't think that's true, no. partly because of how poorly disguised the fact that Sammy Pips is home yes. is. And my other, my other, like one of my pithy thoughts about the book, you know, that I had immediately after reading it was just that it was very daring of Stuart Turton to write a Sherlock Holmes mystery <laughs> in which he locked Holmes in jail for ninety no. percent yeah. of the novel. And that's okay. So that's that's another thing that I want to I want to like. Just zero write in on yeah. on this because I knew that Pips had something to do with it from very early on. Oh yes, sure. he, he um, was too obvious because and of too that fact. Put away. He right. He's he's like one of the only characters who's above suspicion according to <laughs> the narrator's eyes and is out of sight for much of the the narrative. And so obviously he's suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> And one uh, one of the, the interesting things that I think Stuart Turton is doing here by making it such an obvious Sherlock Holmes thing is, uh, here here's the rabbit hole of my brain. Um, anybody mind if I spoil an Agatha Christie <laughs> mystery? I mean, we've all had a hundred well. years. I, I, I've Agatha either Christie, read so. it or probably won't be able to get to it, so... And that's fine. And like that's that's another thing, you know, talking about things that aren't necessarily spoiled by knowing the ending too. I don't think knowing the ending of a lot of Agatha Christie mysteries really matters. Like it's I think it's still just as fun. It's to fun to know. Except that yeah. no one who has not seen the mousetrap on stage knows what the ending of that play is. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um Okay, so I think at at least I'm getting the vibes of it, and I don't want to put thoughts or words into Stuart Turton's mouth, mm-hmm. but I want to give him credit for it <laughs> because I noticed it. Um, I think some of this, The Devil in the Dark Water, is Sherlock Holmes by way of Agatha Christie. Because there's one particular Hercule Poirot mystery by Agatha Christie, uh, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Yes. Um, Once I had finished in which, what I had done in the room. Yep, in which um, uh, Poirot meets a doctor in this town when Roger Ackroyd is murdered, and the doctor is the narrator of this story and becomes the Watson to Poirot's Holmes. And that's Agatha Christie doing Sherlock Holmes. But the thing is, in Agatha Christie's version of Sherlock Holmes, Watson is the murderer. Mm-hmm. Um and so she's she's turning all of that around and making the narrator the murderer, which is, you know, she does that in her mystery. She finds sure. the least likely candidate. Um, and even when you know it's the least likely candidate, she still makes it the least likely candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so this is Stuart Turton taking that another step and saying, okay, here's that setup. But instead of Watson, it's Holmes who's the murderer, right. um, making it even further, which isn't necessarily a unique thing. Like, certainly fan fictions, again, of Sherlock Holmes have made Watson or Holmes the murderer. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in this in this way, it, uh, it goes a step farther. Well, part of the narrative cleverness of that, and why you might not see it coming, mm-hmm. is that even though it's a third-person narrative, um, Arendt is... By by far the the yes, like yes, he's highest the percentage one. viewpoint character yes um and in not just the narrator's eyes but in Arendt's eyes whose eyes you are seeing most of the book through most of the story through um Pips is above suspicion so it, right. it was very cleverly done to naturally work in mm-hmm. Pips mm-hmm. or wor- work in the idea that like. Yeah. Sort of the misdirection of saying no, it couldn't have been Pips mm-hmm. it, 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 because it, it, this character that you're you're seeing things through and you're automatically sympathetic with, if Turton has done his job, like mm-hmm. 
that character is the one who thinks that Pips is above suspicion. So and, and right, you might even, still miss it. Yeah, he even if you if you give the argument, he even gives you a hint that that is the case that he, that's what he's doing to mm. you with Sarah. One of Sarah's comments right at the end of a chapter. I don't remember which chapter it's from, but where she says Arendt is a zealot, Pips is his religion. Yes, yes, I remember yeah, that yeah. Mm-hmm. because that is yeah, which which well, means that that's his blind spot. Yep, yeah, and and right. zealotry. I think a couple chapters before that, zealotry is marked as these are the people who start fires to watch them burn. These are not good people. Mm-hmm. This is a problem. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. Well, and like there, there's all kinds of of religion things that come out yes. in this, like the 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 religion of old Tom, right? Yes, <laughs> comes out too, and. Um, just how that crafts people's actions and worldviews and very very transactional what yes. have you um just to cuz i think religion is a is a big topic that um we probably should and will get into at some point but mm-hmm. um while i'm still thinking of it the i want to go back quickly to the comment you made uh first about uh sherlock holmes and poirot yep and the idea that if this was that genre of fiction, mm-hmm. um, you know, we would know that something supernatural wasn't going on. Right. That even if characters in the book started to have a moment of doubt mm-hmm. or, you know, um, uh, someone uh, mm-hmm. um, starts believing that the Hound of the Baskervilles is an mm-hmm. actual supernatural hellhound or something mm-hmm. like that. Physically you see the him reader, and still like, nah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yep. There's um, got to be an explanation. Like this is terrifying, but there's an explanation. <laughs> exactly. And the reason for that is that that same you know preset expectations, those those genre expectations. Yeah. Um, and that's part of like that's related to what I was getting at with the idea of who like genre and who this novel. Yes. Uh, like who would be most entertained by this mm. novel? I guess mm-hmm. because. Um, you know, the, the thing you read Sherlock Holmes for is not to sort of existentially question reality um, <laughs> or, you know, f- try to try to do sort of a gothic thing where you're exploring the, the uncanny. Um, the, the reason you read Sherlock Holmes or Poirot is to be entertained by the author setting you a seemingly impossible mystery and yep. then explaining it mm-hmm. fairly using the rules of the narrative. Right. And that's that's a thing, too, is fairly. Like, as a reader, you should have all the clues. Right. That, that's the idea that's, of a um, fair play whodunit, which, which, is, which yep. is the yeah. gold standard most of the time for mystery novels. Yep. Exactly. And this book existed an interesting sort of cross-section because I think it probably fits within that that set of rules mm-hmm. but it adds to it mm-hmm. the tropes of that that are often much more speculative fiction mm-hmm. of cosmology and um you know almost borderline like theodicy to a certain extent and mm-hmm. a lot of much more existential questions right Me- meaning not only an unknown not... but an unknowable is kind of accurate. exactly yeah mm-hmm. um and ultimately i think this book rests in like, like the people who would be most entertained by this book are the ones who want a core group of sympathetic characters who are trying to navigate a very dangerous world, not fully knowing if they can trust each other and certainly not being able to trust anyone outside of their group um, and trying to come to some sort of like justice and equitable resolution yeah. for themselves and the world around them and what i've just described is an epic fantasy novel yes mm-hmm. and it's also mm-hmm. this book it, it, it's yeah it, the, the other thing it is it, it's like a claustrophobic thriller with aspects of horror heavy aspects of horror around mm-hmm. it but yeah. epic fantasy has a lot of especially old epic fantasy has horror right on the edges so yeah mm-hmm. like in a lot of ways especially older iterations it tends mm-hmm. to be the difference between an epic fantasy novel and like a highly speculative horror novel is really just who triumphs in the end. Right. Yeah. A lot of the the other ninety percent of the story might be very similar. Mm-hmm. Right. Even even pushing that forward into say like Stephen King, like mm-hmm. a lot of what Stephen King does would be epic fantasy or or other types of fantasy, given just a handful of tweaks mm-hmm. or even given the same book but a slightly different marketing uh, mm-hmm. campaign yeah you could see that yeah it 
What's what's interesting too about this the, the claustrophobia of it mm-hmm. is like you know it's set on a ship and like you get that sense of just how close those quarters are on this ship. So it's it's its own sort of um, uh, take on the locked room mystery, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, it's the ship, but then you have the added feature of the eighth lantern um, right. and all that. So like there is something outside as well. <laughs> Um, and so how does that connect? So it, it somehow rides that line. Well, that, that goes yeah. back into it, the epic fantasy. This doesn't lean as hard yep. into it as it could, but a lot of no. uh, epic fantasies or older stories involving naval activity, the sea itself was an adversary if it was not the adversary. Absolutely. Because yeah. it's mm-hmm. enormous, it's deep, you don't know what's going to come out of it, but it will probably kill you. I was, I was running a... Uh, pirate-based role-playing game um, <laughs> for the last few years. And one of the things that shocked me when I started... Because one thing I like to do in an RPG that has any kind of element of history mm-hmm. is try to dig real things up yeah. from either history or older literature and incorporate them. So I was looking up, like, uh, ships charters for pirate crews, like historical charters. I, charter might be the wrong word, but Rats. basically pirate... Yeah crews would have a list of rules um and anyone who was inducted into the crew you know basically this was your your american constitution or whatever this was the base of of law that you followed essentially on pain of death that you Mm -hmm. swore a blood oath to and and we have you know several of these these documents that have come down to us from the 16th century, 17th century, 18th century. And one thing that shocked me is, at first, before I thought about it at all, is how many of them included in crimes that were immediately punishable by death, uh, the carrying of an open flame (laughs) on board the ship. Yeah, that's sensible. (laughs) Like, yeah, and, and, you know, it would often be, like, this list of crimes that you'd still sort of understand from a 21st century perspective, like, you know... Sexual assault, murder, uh-huh. um, mm-hmm. you know, other, like, spying, you know, there's still right. a lot of government. Spying is a capital offense. and it, But it would be, like, those what sound like major crimes and then carrying an, an uncovered flame. Yep. Um, and, you know, it to, to modern years, it sounds wild so until you think about but the then, fact yeah. that the only thing murder. between you and the vast ocean is, you know, a, hunk of wood. a relatively fragile structure all made out of wood. Right. Covered in tar. Uh, and frequently treated with various oils and yes. tars. Yes. yes. Absolutely. <laughs> you you, you uh, are standing on a perfect bonfire. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> on top of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And it was like something about reading that little nugget and then thinking through logically like that I, gave me that feeling of claustrophobia that you get from like a really good you know, mm-hmm. yes. story or, or mm-hmm. some, you know, that's set on a, on a sailing ship. Like, just that was like, I, oh my gosh, a sailing ship would be, you, as someone who has very mild, but I think very real cl- actual claustrophobia, I was yeah. like, I, an 18th century sailing ship is a setting I would never, ever, ever, ever want to be on. Mm-hmm. Like, I, yes. it's almost indescribable how how little I want that, that yeah. would be. Yeah. So I, I have to digress just really briefly here, talking about um, crimes punishable by death on the on the open sea. Yes. Um, because I know someone whose I think great grandfather or great great grandfather um, on a ship traveling from Norway killed someone in a fight. And therefore was subject to the death penalty. But the captain decided that they were going to be uh, coming into a port very soon. And uh, his penalty would be to fight a tiger barehanded. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, And if he lived, he would would get to live. Mm -hmm. Um, And he killed the tiger with his bare hands by tearing its jaws off of its head and... um, Yikes. This is a very, very strong man mm-hmm. um, coming over from Norway to the United States um, somewhere in the 1800s. So there's there's your fun story mm-hmm. for you. <laughs> great story. And uh, thinking of that and like the rules that this ship does not have very good rules compared to that. Yeah, right? <laughs> like it, it, it seems to like because th- those rules are like this is what you don't do on pain of death on a pirate ship. 
This is supposed to be <laughs> the East uh, India chartered ship, the legal ones, and mm-hmm. it has rules that are way worse. <laughs> yeah, well, like just how like the the characters of the the crew are just yes. the worst. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's you know working as a, a, a sailor basically is it's either that or hanging. <laughs> for right. these people, oh, they're, they're, it's it's a floating prison. Like it, it is literally a floating yeah, prison. Exactly. They're the inmates. Yep, and that's why the, there's this strict rule of they have that part of the ship, the passengers have the other part of the mm-hmm. ship, and never the twain shall meet. Right. Um, which of course means that they're going across that boundary all the freaking Com- time in this <laughs> right. book. Right, complete, <laughs> completely different thing. But going again on how this book developed, was it a prison? Yeah. Was it a prison? Like a landlocked prison where these things were happening and then it got built out of it? Because putting Sammy Pips hmm. in solitary confinement in a pit somewhere, having prisoners where it's you don't talk to the prisoners, you stay on this side, we stay on that side, and then that crossing, that hmm. all fits in with this. There's elements of that throughout that okay. I'm just running into now. I don't know how much this is. It just, it's in- just popped into my mind, but... In the conversation with the author, which is on page 458 in the hardcover uh, edition, um, he talks about how he was accidentally in Australia and came across uh, the story of uh, a wreckage of a ship um, that was a merchant vessel. And as a result of that wreckage, there were all kinds of atrocities um, in the basically um, military society that was established there. Um, so we've got that story. I, I could definitely see it that it started out post shipwreck. Oh, I could see that. Um, yeah. and like they're on an Island with that sort of prison. I could, I could see that being like an early head draft of a story. Again, I don't want to put thoughts or words into Stuart Turton's mm-hmm. mouth or head. Um, but, uh, that's, I, I could see that happening, but also I, I, I think just again, the, the, um, well, I guess you could do it with an Island too, but just that claustrophobic nature and the, the, um, locked door mystery yeah. um, of the ship yeah. is just so fascinating that I I can see it starting yeah. there and coming to the shipwreck as well. Well, mm-hmm. uh, I was uh, I've been frantically paging through trying to find the passage that this this all was making me think of, oh, okay. and I did on four seventy one. It's uh, you got that paperback. What chapter? Yeah, I've got uh, chapter eighty six. Thank you. Um, about a page. And I was going to say, I think my paperback and your hardcover are probably the same. They are not. Oh, they're, they're not. not. Uh, yeah, ours are a little larger, um, so there's less pages. But 86, I think, is the last okay. chapter. Uh, yes. It's so, yes, it is. It's the very last chapter. But towards the beginning, um, the paragraph starts with the... And here's the first Dutch name I'm going to butcher <laughs> and mangle. But Leeuwarden. The Leeuwarden. Leeuwarden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably a V, Louvarden. Oh, yeah, of course. Louvarden, maybe something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, the Louvarden was identical to the Sardom in every way except for the conduct of the crew, mm-hmm. who went about their duties quietly and diligently. <laughs> the captain and his senior officers were talking on the quarterdeck, their measured tones a stark contrast to the gruff bickering of Crowell's oh. army and Van Scooten. Uh, after the rowdiness of the Sardom, Sardom, it really did feel like a ghost ship. Okay, mm-hmm. I I don't think I even clocked that on my my read through, yeah. because that that is that is amazing, mm-hmm. and that paragraph to me, like you know, because this comes after you more or less understand the um, situation, the conceit, yeah, the situation, uh, the conceit that that Pips and and his sister and company have um, brought off, yes. Uh, and so I took that to mean that the uh, uh, the Sardom was that's not actually how ships like this mm-hmm. were or were meant to be. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's in history or in the world of the story that is based in I, history, but like that the the idea that this was sort of one of the places where Pips was sloppy is he ended up having to hire a crew mm, like yeah. this that was basically borderline. Prisoners or criminals yeah, that, or uh, basically right. psychotic, something all of like them. that. Yes, yeah, yeah. But, that it was it was like like the, Treasure Island or, or um, yes, 
You, um, he had yes. he had a purpose, and he just needed to like he needed bodies. You know, this is like, yeah. I, I wonder exactly. if that, that's also a way for him. And I have two things with this. I, I wonder if that was also a way for him, or maybe uh, Cresia. I have no idea how to pronounce her name, so I'm going Cresia. I'm guessing Cresci. Cresci. I, I like Cresci too. Cresci sounds great. Yeah, uh, Cresci works. We'll go with Cresci. Uh, if you if you ever <laughs> yeah. see how her name is spelled, if you know how to pronounce it, good for you, listeners. Because yikes, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, Krishi, uh, I wonder, especially her, because I don't think Sammy Pips has morality. He is amoral. His, his whims and desires are his mm. movements. But, uh, Krishi, mm-hmm. I think this might be her way to absolve herself somewhat of blame, because there's a point in, I believe, page, uh, chapter 86 again, where she says, no one died who didn't deserve it. Yes. And mm-hmm. so maybe they were purposefully, not just being sloppy, but they were purposefully hiring the worst oh. people so that if something terrible happened, they didn't have to feel bad about it. That's, yeah, yeah that's that's mm-hmm. probably exactly and right. And so that is uh, an aspect of it there. Uh, the second thing there is this, that that paragraph talking about, oh yeah, but this, this one's nice. Uh, this might not be something that we can go into, but it comes too late for me in the story. I don't think this is like, and, and this is just going into my personal opinion of the story. I think like objective things aside, (laughs) I can say a lot of things objectively, but personally this story, I, I, I just, there, it was so filled with misery. Oh, (laughs) that the end being, Oh, but things are actually nice in other places came way too Mm. little, way too late. Uh, Okay. Mm-hmm. There's there's an element to it that gets pounded into your head with uh, the- Arendt stories about being in a coma for uh, several days and uh, wandering through an empty afterlife calling for the ghosts of people who don't exist anymore. Uh, and <laughs> uh, Sarah recounting how her life was just a series of horrors on and on and on, especially with her husband, who's a nightmare. Uh, Leah being... There, there's- Cert- there's life. certainly an, an amount of emotional masochism to <laughs> the, this, uh, this. This got to the point <laughs> where story. no one in this time period could live morally except for a very small few, and the very small few who could live morally won't. Mm-hmm. That that I is the that... that is the message that came across to me. Maybe that's what I got, and that's not what is being sent. But that is what I got from this. There is no way to I live morally. The... I think saying the or using the phrase to live morally mm-hmm. sort of front loads that Perhaps. question with a, a sort of a um, spectrum of ideas that's oh, not in the book. Yeah. Um, I'm probably bringing think, my own aspect to it, yes. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, I don't think any of the individual details that uh, were just either brought up or alluded to uh to me are historically inaccurate like there are parts of this book that are Mm -hmm. definitely not historically accurate but none of those are it true um and you know especially the status of women in this time and place oh right is every bit as claustrophobic and um controlled and subject to Mm. abuse as is described in the book which um, makes um, Krishi's character a little interesting, too. Yeah, it, it very much... Could be because historically... And I think one thing that Stuart Turton... She's kind of actually a pretty, Madame du Pompadour. What? She's kind of a Madame du Pompadour. She is, but I, what I was going to say is... But, I think one thing yeah. that Stuart Turton has actually pretty artfully avoided in this book that go into... That a lot of books that go into similar time periods, often written by men... Mm. Um, mm what they do to give their female characters agency and freedom is they either make them happily married or they make them a straight up prostitute. <laughs> True. Um, True. And uh, you know, there's, there is a lot of historical reality to those being two of the main ways for a woman to like live happily again, in this, these in very period. specific mm-hmm. time periods and places. Um, but I think one of the projects certain manages to pull off in this book is portraying characters in this female characters specifically in this world that's very claustrophobic for them and Mm -hmm. and indeed dangerous and abusive giving them a large measure of intelligence Mm -hmm. agency 
Um, and and hope for better. And hope, especially yeah. with Leah. Yes, and doing all of that without making forcing them to be. Um, the the term that gets used in literary criticism is the Madonna whore complex. Yes, I've female heard that characters before. are often um, mm. either so the Madonnas, of course, like the archetype of the Virgin Mary. The, they're either yep. very, so good that they're borderline holy, or not even borderline holy. They're they're literally a saint, right? Or they're literally a prostitute. Mm. And mm-hmm. there's all kinds of potentially very troubling like Jungian archetypal stuff that goes in there mm-hmm. um but like it also creates in historical fiction that doesn't just ignore or merely sexualize a female its female characters it creates like another unhelpful and not real um not historically valid sort of uh spectrum where every female character is this or that or some like combination of the mm-hmm. two um when in fact you know women throughout history have been in as many roles and and you know as many and had have had as many and varied lives and archetypes as men have in experiences yeah mm-hmm. um so i didn't i didn't actually see it as like straight up like Dickensian hard times misery. Maybe it's for me, like, part of what loaded is my visceral reaction in the first reading and still kind of, like, still disappointing in the second reading of the ending. Which, if we can go there, I I don't mean to go there right away, but we we can skip to somewhere else, but... I think we no, should is... talk about the ending a little bit. We're okay. getting close to the end of our hour here. Yeah, I was going to say, this is like okay. later than we've discussed the ending right. of plenty so, of other books. So the, the, uh, the biggest thing, that, and, and this uh, just to go through my thought process, I suppose, on it, Sammy Pips, in the ending, fully admits with no count of remorse to being a serial killer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <And> the ending <laughs> that is proposed as a happy ending is okay, now we're going to tell you how to be a serial killer when the entire reason you became a serial killer is because you were bored. We are going to try to tell you and restrict you on what to do. This will end happily. <laughs> okay, okay. So here's here's my take on the ending really quick. Like, I, and, mm. and I want to I talk more about it too. Um so we, we talked a little bit about the ending of uh, Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle mm-hmm. too when we read that. Yeah. And I'm I'm so, so I, I'll I'll talk more about it later. Um but like how, how that seems to lead into like there could be a sequel to this, mm-hmm. but I don't want it. Yes. Um this is the same. There could be a sequel to this. Like this this definitely this whole book is a setup yeah. for basically Something that could be a series, could be a sequel. I don't want it. I, was I say, love that setup. It, it feels like if this were a Marvel movie, yes. this would be one of those ones that was accused of just being a prologue. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. It, it was supposed to be mm-hmm. the setup for the Avengers. You brought the group together. Right. Yeah, even a TV that. series like the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. And so like at the end, yeah, you've got the group. You've got the Avengers and, are here. Or maybe yeah. more accurately, the Suicide Squad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Slash the Illuminati. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and... Here, here they go. Here, they're going to be the superhero team that goes off. They, they figured out this secret to this superhero ness. Um, but by our powers yeah, Pips is the one yeah. that they've got the 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 blow up his head mechanism right. attached, even though it's or not even, actually even there. Potentially, they all do, but it's like sort of right. for each other. For yeah. each other, they're, they're, yeah. They're, 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 they're trying to be self accountability. Switch, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But and I think was that was that your whole take? Oh, yes. Take it from there. I'll interject if I need to. I, I tend to agree with, like, my, my take is pretty similar to Michael's, I think, in that I think Nick's take is trying to make this book into a slightly older genre that, to be fair, this book has a lot of debts to awesome. and is oh, yeah. building its story off awesome. of. I had completely forgotten that we got to this exact same place at the end of talking about the end of Seven and a Half mm-hmm. Deaths. Because mm-hmm. now that you say that, I vividly remember having this exact discussion. Mm-hmm. And But when I read this book, I had, independently of remembering that, I had come <laughs> to the same conclusion. Where I was like, oh, this is like, if you, you know, made the the first phase of the Marvel movies, and then the point was that the Avengers wasn't going to happen. Right. Um, 
And yep. I think, <laughs> and I think it's similar in a, another way too, which is that the seven and a half deaths, as well as this book, um, gives you what I think is a satisfying ending mm. in disguise as a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think it's fair to say that at all, I don't see any proof on the page for the idea that this book wants you to think yes. a certain thing about the ending. Okay. okay. If you are happy with the ending, that's great. Yeah. If you're not, like, I don't think there's anything that I can see that in argument. this book to prove that Stuart Turton would mm-hmm. no, be sad about that. In the same way that, like, mm-hmm. Seven and a Half Deaths, it gives you a satisfying ending in that you get as much of an explanation as you could possibly mm-hmm. need about what was going on through the scope of that story. But then you end up in an episode of Black Mirror. Mm-hmm. Like, this is still, <laughs> you know, once you hop out of the simulation that is the Seven and a Half Deaths, like, this is still a deeply unjust society with a lot of... You know, it leaves you with as many questions a lot going as on, it does. Yeah. yeah and a lot of moral like... problems with even the main characters here exactly. now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, at no point do either of these books, I think, mm-hmm. try to force you to accept any of the main characters or any of the no. heroes mm-hmm. in a storytelling sense as heroes in a moral okay. sense. Yeah, and that's something that comes out at the end here, too. Like, as far as happy endings, I think the only ones who actually have something happy at the end explicitly stated um are um Crecy and sammy mm-hmm. um that especially Crecy at the end uh who gets the last bit she says then maybe it's time a devil did what god will not said Crecy gaily so she's happy she gets a happy ending to this book but again she's been set up as like mm-hmm. potentially borderline or not even borderline sociopath mm-hmm. exactly yes uh and and sammy is as well mm-hmm. um Arendt is uh, grumbling a little bit. Like, he's yeah. smiling. Uh, that's said at the top of page 253. Arendt was smiling, as was Leah. Um, they're smiling, which I think, like, the smile there doesn't necessarily mean they're happy mm. either. Like, Tends there's smile, certainly yeah. some contentment to the resolution, but um, I, possibly the smiling is, like, understanding the plan and thinking, oh, this can work. Um, but Arndt also just talks in a low rumble as well. Like, maybe right. there's a little bit of begrudgingness to him. I don't know. And, well, um, there, there's there's certainly, like, there's happiness in the ending for mm-hmm. some of the characters, but it's not necessarily a moral happy ending. If this is the Avengers, like, this is Avengers 1, and, you know, Captain America Civil War is still a very real possibility. Mm-hmm. Like, I can see that. I, if, I, if, the, mm-hmm. if this were the... You know, instead, if this were the Boxcar Children mm-hmm. as the setup to a series of, yeah. you know, 12 books or 20 books or 100. Things would be going books. much better. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, no, what I'm saying is book seven or book two oh, or book five is Captain America Civil War. Like, oh, yes. there's, there's the cracks the and fissures are already there. It started. To yeah. make this be later on in their lives be something that, you know... Like there's already a, been betrayed. Yeah, I think that's why I preface this with saying that this was very much a per, like a, it's a personal thing, much more much more than an objective sure. thing. On my stance on, I think, right. and comparing uh, Evelyn Hardcastle to this, I think the reason why I very much enjoy and find satisfying the ending of Evelyn Hardcastle, whereas this one just gets under my skin for it, <laughs> is that the main character and maybe this is because he's just the main character in evelyn hardcastle his response to the world that he finds himself in is there has to be better and he continually pushes for that there continually must be better we must work for it we have to do that whereas the ending of the devil in the dark water feels more like there isn't better so this is the best we've got and maybe that again is a personal aspect that i'm coming from yeah, I mean, it is it is a personal aspect, and, like, we could mm-hmm. sort of compare, you know, personal subjective reactions like mm-hmm. that all day, right. and it's not an uninteresting or invalid discussion. Yeah, it's very yeah. interesting and very valid. Um, but I think part of what you may be picking up on is the perspective of someone from the 21st century yes. writing a novel set in the 17th century, yes. knowing the weight of history as it like will occur afterwards okay. so it the yeah the real betrayal of an ending would be to try to like retcon some sort of like historical utopia or golden okay. age 
and I, like you know maybe in knowing that that's that, not possible that, that goes or, to the aspect um, killing hitler in a theater and exactly goes to the aspects that uh can come from other things and this this is wildly this is I, i'm saying uh, this this is a wildly incorrect statement that i don't know how to say any other way um but yeah. the idea of many 21st century authors that there was that that uh history at any point in time was bad not, not, and, and that's not how okay. I'm saying that. That, that. that if you lived in this I, point in history, you had a terrible life. Sure. Sure. And that you that's, had to, yeah. essentially, have a terrible I, life. And uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, part of what I enjoyed about this mm-hmm. novel is that I think that idea was very much in view. It was a possibility. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of what Turton ended up doing with the characters was actually to push against okay. that. Mm-hmm. I, I think he does some interesting, complicated things mm-hmm. with that. And so I think um, next time we will talk a little bit more about morality because I've got a few other yeah. thoughts about that. Um, and also, gentle listener, something else to look forward to next time. There's a reading group guide. Uh, yes, and so uh, we will uh, yeah. we will have we will follow our tradition on uh, this podcast uh, as we close out. Um, morning. It's not good. Now we will uh, we will take a take a look at that reading group guide and we will rate it. Uh, I think what's, we've traditionally rated it we... out of 10. I think we've given a four. Okay. I was about to say, what's the highest we've ever guide. rated a reading group guide? I think the highest we've given is a I was going to say a five, four. but four would also make sense. Four. And I think we gave that to Snowflower and the Secret Fans reading group guide. We gave yeah. it a four. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. I thought maybe we gave that one a five, but maybe a four. Like, maybe one of us gave it a five, but I, I four is sticking in my brain. Okay. Um, maybe I just thought because it was the highest, surely it had to be five. Whenever we get the wiki all published for this podcast <laughs> and have all the stats out there, then we'll there be able go. to know. Um, <laughs> but um, So thank you for following us for this, uh, this first episode, Gentle Listener, discussing The Devil in the Dark Water by Stuart Turton. Um, next time we'll talk maybe more about the mythology, maybe more about the morality, and certainly the reading group guide. We'll get that in there as well. Um, no one uh, lost this episode, so uh, we'll see if anybody loses next episode. But of course, as the tradition stands, if four episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. Um, I don't think Nick is planning to be on for uh, our next set of episodes, but um, uh, he might he might escape the punishments. I mean, if he wants to read... Uh, the Fisherman by Chigozi Obioma. He, he certainly could. Yeah, certainly. You may. We'll yeah, see. I, I have several things to read already. So, <laughs> All right. Well, we'll put this one on your pile, too. Right. Um, but, uh, uh, Nick, uh, do you have uh, anything to plug? Where can the people find uh, you? Nothing too major. Um, if you listen to Pokemon Rollout on the same thing, I'm the one uh, running that uh, for you know increasingly chaotic uh, uh, definitions of the word running. Uh, it seems to be going all right. But <laughs> besides that, I have a Twitter, and I don't think I've posted on it in more than a year, so I apologize for that. And I don't know if that will ever change. I hope it will, but who knows? Uh, and that's about it for me. And what is what is that? Uh, Poke Roll Nick at Poke Roll Nick. Thank you very much, uh, Ethan. Where can they find you? I am on Twitter at Bjartlet. That's at B J A R T L E T T. I'm on Twitter even less these days than I ever am. Um, so better ways to contact me might be the Tapestry Radio stuff that I think Michael is about to say. Yes. Uh, well, you can find me personally at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L, but I am also more readily accessible through the Tapestry stuff, either at Room with Scotch on Twitter, but even more accessible, go to the tapestryradio.org website. Uh, you can find the Scotch Talk uh, stuff there, or go to the contact section, um, and uh, contact us there. Give us your feedback. Uh, send us your homework. If you go to uh, the uh, tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast, uh, you can send us your homework, and we will fill that out for you as well. Um, we'll, we'll do your homework the best we can, or at least the fun- funniest we can. Uh, and then you can submit that to your English professors or teachers, and we'll laugh as you're hauled off to plagiarism jail. Um, if you like this podcast, check out the other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, such as Pokemon Rollout, for which Nick is the Game Master, uh, or Intermission, the backstage drama podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the actual play RPG fiasco podcast, uh, Freddy goes to a podcast where three grown men discuss the children's book series, uh, Freddy the Pig. 
Uh, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, all those podcasts you love on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that'll help uh, other people find the podcast and enjoy the content that you enjoy as well. And with that, until next time, just remember, it's our party and we'll cry if we're locked in the bilge of an 18th century ship. 17th century. 17th century, yeah. I Sorry, I was getting all my numbers times, wrong. So I primed you to be wrong. So it's your fault. Yep. I blame Ethan. It's all Ethan's fault, everything. I'm crying. Yep, good job. Bye! Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.